Hello, friends. How's it going? It's Matt. You listen to the latest of my irregular series of bonus episodes of the Looking Sideways Action Sports podcast. No fuss, no fanfare, just a quick chat with a friend of mine every now and again when the opportunity comes up. And this one with my friend Chris Hines had a very particular genesis. It came about when I was asked by a listener to the show, Christian Germain, to put together a workshop on how to create a podcast. Now, Christian works for a company called Watson Marlow down in Falmouth in Cornwall. And as an avid listener to the show, he was interested in learning how to put together a podcast and also picking my brains, I think, on, you know, creativity, um, interviewing people, like all the stuff that basically I do on this show. Now, I've never really done anything like this before, so I gave it a lot of thought before coming up with an idea for a workshop. And after I'd written the thing and come up with a plan, I headed down to Falmouth in Cornwall to hold the workshop with Christian and some of his colleagues. And the way it worked was this, the day began with me running through a talk that while ostensibly about how to create a podcast like Looking Sideways, was really all about the creative lessons I've learned in the 25 years. I've been doing this extremely weird job and how you can use these insights for your own creative purposes. Now, this was more like a a collaborative chat than a lecture. went on for a couple of hours, which for me made it very enjoyable. Then we had some lunch and went for a walk. And then I get into the point. I interviewed Chris Hines in front of him. It meant that the Watson Marlowe team could think about the lessons that we'd just gone over and get a practical understanding of how I use the techniques if you like to put together my interviews and we discussed it so they could pick my brains on why I'd made certain decisions why I'd asked particular questions and so on then to cap it off the plan was that they'd go away digest the lessons and then interview me as a team which we would then dissect together afterwards that was the plan that's what we did and the interview with Chris Hines which is what you're about to listen to went so well Um, But I decided to put it out as a bonus episode of the show in its own right. Now, if you've heard my Type 2 episode with Chris or you um, tuned into the Type 2 live interview with Chris that I did in spring 2020, you're going to be expecting a really fascinating conversation. And that's exactly what happened, basically. If you don't know Chris, he's a surfer and activist best known for being one of the original driving forces behind the initial incarnation of Surfers Against Sewage. Uh, Today, he enjoys a reputation as one of the most respected and successful communicators in British environmentalism. I always very much enjoy our time together and this conversation was no exception. So here it is. A bonus interview between me and Chris Hines recorded in front of a small audience in Falmouth in early 2021. Enjoy. But you still get nervous, that's what you were saying. Yeah, I do still get a little bit nervous, yeah. I think it's quite sensible. Well, otherwise you become a bit complacent. Right, but it sounds like you use that as um, fuel, <coughs> almost. Yeah, you've got to have an energy. If yeah. there's no energy in a piece that you do or anything in life, then it's, it, that energy's contagious. And, you know, nothing gets built or changed or, or developed without there being an energy. So you might as well give it a bit of energy. Yeah, because I was struck when we were talking earlier and I was talking about, like, you know, my relationship to sort of imposter syndrome and ego and all that stuff. And I think you said something like, 
I can't quite remember what you said, but like, but you can use it or it's a fuel or something similar, you know. So it's interesting to hear that because it because it is something you need to reconcile, isn't it? When you when you whether it's public speaking or whether you do something like this, you do need to work out how to cope with that somehow. And it is a choice at the end of the day. Like if you choose to use it as like a positive thing, yeah, or dread it so i the point i was referencing i i think was saying is the inner critic helpful and i think it is to a little bit to, to a certain extent you shouldn't kind of doubt yourself yeah but you should make sure that you are that you're going to do your best yeah yeah because you were almost saying that that's almost it, it sounded like it's a way of keeping you honest almost if that makes sense you, well, and you should be honest at yeah. all times and yeah, I, yeah. you know i, I think you know, being honest about what you're talking about and the subject matter, even if it's saying I don't know, yeah, that's a really important thing. And when we look at our politicians now, this is the whole opposite of that. This the counter bluff and the kind of thing that I always know what I'm talking about when we know full well that they don't. Yeah. And that just undermines public confidence and Yeah. Well that doesn't seem to make much difference to their popularity right now. It <laughs> doesn't regrettably, no. But maybe in time. That will change yeah. next time we get a chance to vote. Well, let's hope so. I mean, mm. we were just talking about like um, when we were walking, the situation down here, weren't we? Like, and how acute, because this, this part of the country is always like, effectively seems to feel the effects of societal change more quickly than other areas of the country, whether it's like lack of social mobility, poverty, um, and now gentrification, second home issue. You know, it seems to it seems to like hit the Southwest before the rest of the country in, in some ways as, as if like, like it feels the effects a bit more acutely um, and the issues become a bit more pronounced down here. You know, you can see that with Brexit for sure. You know, people are already talking about the consequences. Whereas if you look at like the Southeast, for example, it's still a bit theoretical, you know, like down here, it's, it, it's something that's real immediately. And that often seems to be something that happens down here, you know, and it, I've become aware of it the more time that I spend down here. You know, over time, it, the, the issues become more acute and the answers become less obvious, really. I think part of that is because it's, it is this peninsula. So there is no, there's nothing north, there's nothing south and there's nothing to the west. So whatever happens here, happens here. So even, for example, I was mentioning hospitals. Yeah. Um, and the pressures that tourism brings onto our hospitals you know my partner katie she's a consultant pediatrician she's in there today um and you know cornwall's hospitals and health services built for a population of half a million just yeah. over half a million right now we've probably got 750 maybe even 800,000 people in county um we have no um intensive care beds for children if you get ill you're going to go to bristol as a child if you need intensive care and i think a lot of people don't understand that and don't realize that um, so that brings again, just on that issue of healthcare yeah. and how stretched the NHS is, you're right. It's in the summer, it's absolutely maximized. The yeah. debate is maximized. And I think it's the same with Brexit, with the fishermen, yeah. you know, it's instant. Do you see people making those connections though, between those political choices and those outcomes? Cause I mentioned when we were walking earlier, like, you know, quite glibly, I said something like, but then the county still keeps committing acts of political and economic self-harm by for example voting for brexit y you know the point i'm making yeah. like because obviously 
what I guess what we're talking about here is like how politics actually affects real people on day to day level, aren't we? Because you know, people often, especially in this country, say, "Ah, oh, you know, politics. I'm not interested in that. It doesn't really affect me." Like blah blah blah. But what we what we're talking about here is like the fact that it actually really does affect real people in in real ways. Do you think people, when you've got an issue like gentrification, just turn that off, getting the old electric <laughs> buzzer in my ears. Um, do you think people are starting to make those connections between like those political events and and these on the ground outcomes a bit more? I um, think they are, but I think a lot of people still like to, to like like to act without the, the link. So I'm I mean I'm absolutely stunned that we voted Brexit. It just seemed like a an act of incredible stupidity, <laughs> um, especially given the amount of money that this county has received from. Uh, you know Europe yeah but I think we have a, a, a population a lot of people in uh, the more elderly people have moved here partly because they've moved here because they wanted to get away from what they saw as wrong with the country but they've come here and in the same way you know some of them moving away from immigrants because they felt that their town or wherever they're from has been you know overrun with immigrants I've yeah. heard people say that who've moved to Cornwall and there was a shopkeeper at our local shop and I said but you've moved here you've taken our uh, over our local shop and bless him the guy who owned the shop just went you know what I never thought of it like that really wow but once I'd said it to him he realized that that was the situation and I said you know is it arguable and I, I you know I think we should all be you know bring on the Star Trek years, as a friend of mine, Kwame, said, you know, when, you know, the people on the bridge of the Starship Enterprise are all come from all creeds, colours, backgrounds, genders and everything. And that's where we need to go to as a, as a global population. And the sooner we get there and the sooner we realise that we have far more in common with each other yeah. than divides us, the better. Um, but I think, you know, this thing of not putting, not connecting the day-to-day -day realities of the challenges of our lives with the political decisions and we make it is I, I struggle to understand why people can't make that connection and you know more people didn't vote in Cornwall at the county elections than voted at all and they carry that way to power and one of the things that I you know I've done um, I mentor two young black guys at the moment um, a Corey who's 22, BBC Young Creative of the Year. Um, he's a digital designer. Um, and then another chap called Louis, who's a musician and a climate uh, change campaigner. And one of the things I'm saying to them is that, you know, those parliaments and these institutions, the, the bodies, we don't need to get rid of them. We just need to own them. They're ours. Yeah. And that was one of the things that I learned from SAS, you know, very early that actually we had the right to go to the Houses of Parliament. Yeah. We could pull the Secretary of State for the Environment. It was our debating chamber as much as anybody else's. So it's not that we need to bring down those systems. And a Corey, is for it, he's building an app on um, you know, accountability of the police force. Now, right. it's not that he, as a young black man, thinks that the police should be disbanded and overthrown. He just wants them to be accountable. And when they're accountable, then he knows that the population... Uh, and the sector of society that he lives in and, and, and works with, and that he's part of, will then interact with the police more. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, what you're talking about here is like a, rather than like the overthrowing of the status quo, like an adjustment of the status quo, aren't you? And, and, and I think like, personally, whenever, like, 
conversations around this are so binary these days, aren't they? If you look at um, Black Lives Matter, there's a movement, mm. you know, like it immediately becomes, well, if you support that, you support defunding the police, you know, whereas actually yeah. that the goal of that organization is, is like you've just described, it's just more accountability, isn't it? For like that organization to reflect the reality of the times that we now live in, you know, rather than saying that it's acceptable for that organization to run in the same way with all the problems that, that have been engendered by that over the years, essentially. It's like when you look at that, did you see Dawn Butler, the MP, the yeah. other week? Um, yeah. Who was thrown out for... For lying. For calling Boris Johnson <laughs> yeah. a liar. Yeah. And, you know, that was... That became a story because... Not about the accuracy of what she'd said, but about the fact that she'd um, offended the convention of Parliament that you're not allowed to call people a liar. You know, and that became, like, the story, didn't it? Now, obviously, that's just an insane... You know, in the 21st century, the idea that that's actually a thing that you're not allowed to call each other liars even though we've got a prime minister who's clearly a shameless liar you know is just says to me like the answer there isn't to like overthrow parliament it's just to kind of maybe look at adjust it for the way that we live now so that there is more accountability which is something we seem to struggle with really to like have that have that kind of nuanced debate about any of these issues without immediately becoming this polarized you know yeah and that's again with social media is driven in there to split us 50 50 you know the whole all the log logarithms ex all of that that's what its aim is to do so you know in the the social dilemma and 10 reasons to delete your social media account that's what they're saying they set those systems up yeah so that if i drink one form of cola you know coca-cola then i'm made to hate you if you drink pepsi or any other example and that's actually wrong. You know, 70% of us, I grew up in times when 70% of us agreed on 70% of things in general, in life. You know, and we would have known the extremes that we probably, again, all agreed that we, you know, were pretty bad things. You know, terrorism, blowing people up, paedophilia, that kind of stuff. But generally, we would have kind of got on and been at least tolerant of most people within that kind of 70-70 block. And I think that if there's one thing I want to see society go back to, it's the respect that 70% of us agree on 70% of everything and then try and build that to eight, out to 80, 85, you know, keep, yeah. keep building that. Do you think that's why the conversation around sustainability is having an impact? Well, I mean, maybe that's a question for you anyway. Do you think it's having an impact? But it feels like there's, because um, there seems to be a consensus around that issue generally like that you, as you're talking about people generally you know whatever the percentage of people is generally consider it to be a problem generally agree with that and generally agree that things need to be done um is that something that you see in that movement that that, that there is a consensus there that is helping people to sort of change things positively in the way that you're kind of describing i think that there it, i think you always need agitators on the ex on the kind of outside so organizations that are kind of like agitating for change and pushing the agenda as fast as they can and then people do accept that there is a need to move I, you know i've just uh, was mentioning earlier Mark Carney's book Values. Now again, some people say, "Well, it's written by, you know, the ex-governor of the Bank of England. That's the problem. We need to overthrow capitalism." Well, we, you know, to think that we're going to make the changes that need to happen, the time scale that we need to make those changes happen, and completely overthrow the entire system that the, that the world is built on, isn't isn't realistic. Yeah. But that's not to say that we don't generally understand that there's a need to change that system 
and that's the essence of his book. When you read his book, it's saying that the values that run our, our society are wrong. They're not based on solidarity. And he lists them as solidarity, integrity, humility, fairness, responsibility. And if we take those things and we apply them to businesses, you know, and that businesses should be run in that way, then we end up with good businesses. And that's how, you know, businesses that look after their staff, that look after the environment, and are fit for the 21st century. And I think most people generally understand that. What they now want to see is leadership to take them into that space. And that is leadership from companies, but also from our politicians. And if the politicians don't deliver it, then society will. And so I think we have to believe in that strength of society and the strength in um, some of our kind of, you know, social leaders, some, you know, people like musicians and people like, you know... Footballers. Footballers, yeah, I mean... I mean, it's topical. Absolutely, <laughs> you know, and more people would probably vote for Gareth South, Southgate now than would they would for Boris. Well, Rashford's a more effective leader of the opposition than Keir Starmer, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, let's, let's be honest. We are in those places, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, I mean, that brings it back to the Cornwall chat that we were just having a second ago because when you look at those issues that are part of the country like Cornwall faces, like, you're not going to get that solved top down it doesn't feel like to me you know you're not going to get unless there's like some seismic event politically which i can't really see happening personally because we don't really go in for seismic political shifts in this country but um it feels like it needs to be a grassroots um change really you know there's a lot of local people organizing about like second home ownership for example in the rental market it kind of feels like it would have to come from there really and it feels like there is more that conversation is starting to become louder really I think it is becoming louder. What's needed is we need to find the solutions and we need then to deliver those solutions in a, a way that is palatable and uh, undeniable and unresistible to the people who have currently the powers to stop that. So, for example, in Cornwall, we should be seeing, you know, self-build housing cooperatives being granted pieces of land to do proper low-carbon, you know, building for um, the young people who live here and also older people. You know, we need that kind of thing to be put in place. And I think you're right. The examples are there. What we now need to do is to communicate the need and, and win that debate. And one of the things that I always say is, you know, we we should use every tool that is used to sell and push the version of the world that we don't like just use those tools and use them better i might take it slightly trivial on the same topic because we've been chatting on and off over the summer obviously and, and over covid obviously we did a couple of interviews together last year and have stayed in touch and you're noticing this in the lineup right the busyness the, the change that's certainly a couple of things that you've that yeah. you've mentioned to me like um and it is, it is like a generally a topic of discussion in UK surfing right now because of the post-COVID influx of beginners, let's call it that politely. Um, but again, Cornwall is tends to be at the sharp end of that, tends to see these trends, even like I say on this kind of trivial surf level, but obviously it's something we're both very passionate about. Mm -hmm. So how's that been? Because I remember you, you were saying it was, because you live near Port Town, right? Yeah. Which is obviously like you know as as 
popular as it gets really in Cornwall on a good day. So what what are you seeing there? Like what changes are you seeing? Like is it is it affecting like the community of like the surf community down here as dramatically as it seems to seems to be? I, I, I think it, it there's massive effect, but I think isn't that our whole world? So it's almost the world in a in the microcosm of a surf lineup that you know, this there's there's a lot of us. Yeah. And we now because there's a lot of us, we have to have some form of mutual respect. Yeah. And you know, there's so Porth Town, you know, it's it, it can be mobbed. But depending on the, the vibe in the water, you know, and one or two people can spoil that. But if people have a little bit of respect and give away... One-man one crowd, as I heard an Aussie refer to it once. Yeah. <laughs> He's a one-man crowd, that bloke. <laughs> yeah, and they just agitate and then they wind everybody else up. Whereas, you know, we are all beginners, you know, and I've got this kind of thing at the moment, you know, I'm... I started off surfing on a wooden belly board. I'm currently waiting for a hip operation, but I had the best session this about a week and a half ago on my wooden belly board. Like, so I've kind of 50 years later or 55 years later back on a wooden belly board and loving it. And that takes me to slightly different places in the surf. And, and also, you know, I enjoy watching people who are beginning get their first wave because it's, it's a buzz. Now, what does need to happen is, you know, at Porth Town, there's, there's like five or six different surf schools operating there now. And one of those is excessive. One of those has turned up and is taking three lessons in at a time. Now, that's a bit greedy. Yeah. And I've been there down and said, isn't, you know, that's like pushing it a bit. And I, but I've gone and had the conversation with him. What did he say? Um, he said, well, uh, actually, yeah, I probably hear you, but no one can stop me if I don't. And I think I'm doing okay. Now, you know, it's a tough one because... It's a challenging one, that. It, it, is, it is challenging. Yeah. But what, what the, the key is, is that they should be, again, teaching that respect of, you know, when you're in the water, here's the things to watch out for. You can't have every wave that you've got. And if you're teaching people a bit of basic etiquette, yeah. and that's etiquette about the world, it's about etiquette, um, you know, for the surf. But it's even things like, you know, like the classic one of if you walk into a bar and you're queuing up for a drink... I think this is, I can think I can remember that from this from pre COVID times and, and <laughs> yeah. someone, you know, I can walk into my local bar at Porth town and I can get a drink probably quicker than most people because I can see one of the bar crew who will recognize me, but that's just a wind up. Yeah. Why should I do that? What I actually do is to say, Oh no, this person's in front of me. They've been waiting longer. Yeah. So what? I've waited an extra two, three minutes to get served. But that person's had a nice time. They respect me. They respect where they are. And that then allows us, if some other idiot comes in and pushes in and is all arsy, we can turn around and say, um, excuse me. And there was a classic one of those ones. I was, on, I was working in London and I went to get on the sleeper train, uh, the, the last train back. And on the, uh, the six o'clock train that's got a dining um, yeah, the on posh it. one, the good one. And I've been up all I've been up since like five in the morning and gone to London, been at meetings all day, and they've gone really well. And I thought, well, I'm gonna treat myself to a good meal on the way back. Yeah. And you can automatically upgrade for the duration of the meal if there's a space in the dining car. Yeah. So there was a load of it, but you have to let first class people get their seats in the dining car first. And we were sat there, there was a load of us all stood on the platform waiting to see if there are any seats available. And this guy came up. And he kind of said, what are you queuing for? And we said, well, we're waiting to see. And he said, well, what's to stop me 
just walking down the carriage and sitting in one of those seats. And we went, well, nothing. <laughs> so off he went. So I then went to the steward and I just said, there's a guy just coming in to sit down who's just, and I repeated the conversation. And the steward went and tapped this bloke on the shoulder and said, if you'd like to go and join the back of the queue. And this guy got off the train, came straight up to me and went and threatened me. Really? And instantly, the three or four people who were around me who had also said, if you've got a problem with him, you've got a problem with all of us. Wow. And that was that solidarity. And we called out an asshole. And he had to wait at the back. And then he did finally get his seat, but he was the only one who was on a table on his own. <laughs> and he had a miserable little meal. That's punchy, though, isn't it? In both senses of the words, yeah. to actually do that. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's where surfing is such a metaphor, though, isn't it? Yeah. For so many so things. that's that same thing, you know? Like, yeah. we can all have... We can choose the vibe. We can, you know... and. I think if you like and if you find a little secret don't tell everybody about a secret you know if you find yourself a little peak you know maybe take one or two people there but don't take everybody don't instagram it because that will kind of spoil. because then when you go back to your favorite secret little thing that you found there's 600 people there yeah i find it so interesting i talk about this quite a lot on here i was chatting do you know james bowden james bowden no no he said no. lives in i think he lives in falmouth anyway he listens to this, so hello, James, if hello, you are listening. Um, anyway, James is like an amazing surfer, amazing photographer. And he put a post up. I think there was a really good swell in maybe like February or March. And he put a post up on Instagram about how he was upset that lots of the local young photographers had immediately posted pictures of the swell on Instagram. Yeah, And he was like, so for me, this was really interesting because he was basically, because obviously what you're talking about is like the in-water etiquette, you know, that's, that yeah. exists in surfing. Like don't, you know, the, mm. the enshrined common sense rules that have been around for years that definitely need more work now because there's newcomers, blah, blah, you know, don't share secret spots, all that stuff. Um, but I was like, wow, this is actually, this is a new dimension of this because you're talking about photography etiquette and you're, you're coming at this from a place of basically print you know, you're an old, an older guy mm. who grew up with print and never had to worry about that as an issue because basically you had print cameras back in the day. You would take a picture of a spot and then your lead time for that, for it actually being published anywhere was months. So mm. you didn't have to worry about that. But now obviously it's instant. You can take a picture, put it on Instagram the next day and blow a spot basically. And he was, he was calling that out. And I was a bit like, can you actually control that? Can, can you actually... Because we just, we're friends. Like, I don't know him super well, but we're friends through like Instagram and that. And because we've got loads of mutual friends. And I was messaging and I was like, I get it, but that that's surely a bit old man shaking his fist at clouds, really. Like, you know, can you actually stop that? You know, isn't this just a case of like the world's changing and ultimately, you know, you can't really put your finger in that. <laughs> you, you can't put your finger in the dike mm. there. Do you know what I mean? Like, I just found it really interesting because he was he was a bit like, yeah, I see your point. But at the same time, it does ruin things. I was like, I get it ruins things. But, you know, ultimately, we don't live in an analog culture when it comes to surf photography anymore. We live in a digital culture. And that is, you know, magazines have, have, have been affected by that. Business models have been affected by that. Photographer, professional photography careers have been affected by that. This is like one long tail shake of that, like a consequence. Can you really enforce that as well? I don't know if you can really. I don't think you can ever enforce 
anything. It has to be what's seen as a norm, a, a, an acceptable societal norm. And, you know, like, yeah, I used to work for the first surf, surf magazine called Surf Scene. Yeah. You know, back in 83, 82, 83. And it was the first magazine to get national distribution through WH Smith's and, and Menzies. Um, but I had some pictures of a certain spot in North Cornwall, which was, a, you know, a perfect, perfect point break over boulders and things. And I never, ever took the photos that I had into the magazine. I just wouldn't do it um, because I kind of had a respect for the place, but also for the people who surfed there. And I think there's that, you know, if you find that place, then it is amazing. And I still had, I've had one this year where I've seen people walk around into a favorite spot where I surf and it's a little bit tricky to get to. And you can see them just go, wow. And there's no one here. And you can see that their sense of discovery is as much as my sense of discovery. And I think in a way, what you can't enforce it, but if you could encourage the photographer to have the same mentality of the other photographer who'd found it and kind of, you know, make sure that we're in the background, don't put anything that identifies the place in the background. It could be anywhere. Yeah. And that's just that little thing of, of, of treating it like a treasure. Yeah. But I, I guess I see it a bit more like this is this is probably going to sound a bit weird, but like almost like the Olympic debate, really. You know, ultimately the culture is changing. I guess that's not the point that okay. I'm making. Like that, it isn't like it was 20 years ago, and certain things will necessarily change about a culture. And I think one of the things I'm quite interested in about the Olympics is. Because we've kind of been through this with snowboarding. I mentioned to you earlier, pet topic of mine. Don't worry, not going to derail it. Um, but like we've seen the consequence of that when you get an alternative sporting culture and a mainstream sporting culture and what happens to the alternative culture. That definitely happened with snowboarding. Mm. I'm really fascinated to see what happens with surfing due to its exposure to the Olympics because of that lens, basically, yeah. like because of what this new essentially like cultural influence, which is probably the biggest sport and cultural influence in the world, really the Olympics, you know, maybe like the world cup or something, you know what I mean? Like yeah, it, yeah. it has that power. Um, and I find it really fascinating. Even when you saw some of the athletes, I mean, I'm even call them athletes, the surfers, <laughs> um, how proud they were and how like they forgot about surf culture for a second and they were suddenly like athletes. And the, do, you, do you know, you know what I'm saying? And I guess I look at something like this, that example I just gave you earlier and something like the Olympics is like just a huge outside force, which no matter what your intentions are within the culture are going to, are going to change things. And the more you try and kick, I, I just think it's a question of like recognizing the things that you can you know the etiquette stuff we talked about clearly that needs to remain intact but there are things that are going to be outside of the control of that culture necessarily that you're going to have to at some point accept and adapt to uh, uh, what well, i think you're you that's the thing it's in it, it is you can't just put the wall up and say this isn't happening yeah you have to then uh, embrace and adapt in a way and try and be positive and try and say you know that that that's the thing of not putting up where the photo is exactly and not naming it put yeah. the photo up if that's what you ha if, if if that's the point that we've reached but i mean surfing's changed so massively since you know like i was young and it, and and with many many benefits you know wetsuits 
performance of boards, you know, women in the surf. I mean, yep. jeepers. You know, that was kind of seen as absolutely foreboden that there would be a female in the surf before. And yet now... Which you is know, wild, like, isn't it? Because you're only talking 30 years ago. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean and, 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 but still, it's incredibly macho. You know, it is still that way out there, you know. And, and those things are completely unacceptable. And actually, you know, it's lovely to see those changes. But it's encouraging and, and, and embracing and allowing other people to understand the special bits. And, you know, I can still be out on a break and you know you can help set the vibe you can just have that polite word you can just in the same way as i was talking about the guy on the train yeah on the platform you can have that conversation with people in the water if they paddle out and be hassly you can say look if we all just chill out a bit we're all going to get some really good waves yeah and we're going to enjoy ourselves and we're going to laugh and hoot you know like i make silly noises when sometimes when i'm on a wave or when someone else is on a wave and the best person i one of the best per people i ever surfed with is a guy called smiley dave who literally <laughs>, laughs and giggles when he's on a wave and Strong he's name. a joy to have in the water because he helps just diffuse that and you can do that in a friendly manner and i think that's where but you know the olympics just as the olympics is one force so is digital media. Yeah. You know, we'll live in a times when we'll be uploading directly from our phones that are glued to our foreheads, <laughs> you know, yeah. the, the, apart, the, the wet systems where we've got cameras in, in our retinas broadcasting direct. Well, what do we do then? Yeah. But that's probably coming at us. Um, but it, it's about people being responsible. It's the same as being people being responsible with any tool yeah. or anything that they have. And that's a, that's a global sustainability thing. You know, treat it with respect. Has your relationship with surfing changed over the years? Um, Given these shifting yeah. backdrops that we're talking about? Uh, no, I still, I mean, it's obviously changed, but then, you know, I went for a walk on the beach the other day, it was completely flat. Um, but then when I walked, I went, no way, look at that. And I found a little, like, you know, rib-high wave just cracking down a little bank. And I kind of, like, hightailed it back, got my wooden belly board got with fins. In I went, and I was having, you know, overhead waves. I'm on a belly board, everything's yeah. overhead. Um, and I was probably about as happy and frothing as I ever was when I was a teenager or, you know, surfing down in Swan with 10 people in the water having, you know, minute long waves. So how did you get into it? We didn't really talk about this last time. We sort of um, fired straight into the SAS story, didn't we? Yeah, we did. And it kind um, of struck me afterwards, like we never, we never really talked about, you know, where, where you found it and, you know, what it meant to you in the early years, which okay. is kind of a bit of a, definitely interesting given you've dedicated your life to, to the culture really, you know, in so many ways. Um, yeah, so I grew up in the, on, Dartmoor uh, but my parents always used to take us to the beach we used to have I didn't I never went abroad until I was 19 and we just used to have our holidays in Cornwall really and when I was so I'd always had a wooden belly board from kind of age four till I was 11 my brother got a mal when I was 11 and I borrowed that and then there was a brilliant book um, in the school library Tavistock comprehensive school library on surfing and in all my library lessons, I just used to go through that. Right. And um, then myself and a really close friend, Rob Hooper, who I was with last night, really still 
see Rob. We were the two surfers in the school, really. Right. And we would hassle our parents to take us to Widmouth um, or Polzeth, and we'd go surfing irrespective of whether it was, like, you know, flat with, a, like, a six-inch ripple or whether it was, like, you know, February and screaming 10-foot onshore. That right. was where we were going, and we'd go in, and we saved, you know, I saved all my dinner money, um, and bought a really crap second-hand board for 20 quid. And a really bad wetsuit for another twenty five quid that had a you know diving suit, but I loved them, and then you know slowly over that was how I got into surfing and then um yeah, when I was seventeen, I was suddenly able to drive, yeah, uh, and then that opened everything up, and we would just go surfing as much as we could and then i'm yeah, then I got a job. A bit like you, from hearing your story, you know, like age 19, I'd failed my A-levels because I was, dad tried to persuade me to be a doctor, but I was no good at that. And I used to like English, so I used to write. And I sent an article off to the new emerging surfing magazine, Surf Scene, and said, your bit of fiction in there, I think my bit's better. And Chris Neal, who passed away a few years ago, he was the editor and he said, come down. And when I was 19, the year I was, the summer I was 19, he gave me you know, six weeks' work. One was to prepare a magazine and be an assistant editor. And then the second bit of the summer was going and interviewing people like Rabbit Bartholomew, Sean Thompson, Shane Horan, Nick Carroll. Wow. When I was 19. Yeah. So suddenly a bit, you know, whack into interviewing people who were my absolute heroes. How was the imposter syndrome? Uh, massive. <laughs> <laughs> Although I think when I was that, I didn't really think about the imposter. I think I've become yeah. slightly more... Probably wasn't really a phrase back then, was it? No, and I probably have become more self-analytical the older I've got. And I think that just goes with territory yeah. and the age a bit. Yeah, I think back to it. I mean, it is a really similar story. Um, and yeah, and I think back to when I first started working in media when I was a kid, really. You know, literally not much more than a child. And sort of think back to that and wonder where the front came from, really, <laughs> to actually yeah. do it, you know, to actually... Because as I was explaining, like when um, I basically got commissioned to do a couple of pieces, I finished my degree, and then I ended up driving with my friend to the publisher of White Lines and sort of saying, like, you know, pitching them that we would take over the magazine, blah, blah, blah. Um, and now I look back at that and I think, like, where on earth did that come from? And, and I was very lucky that I was guided by my friend Chris, who was, to be honest, like, idea it was really, and and who led on that. But... I still kind of went along with it and I still, and you know, now I'm like, gee, I don't know if I don't have the confidence to do that now, really, you know, it's, no. it, but I guess it's the kind of bulletproof ignorance of youth a bit, isn't it really? Yeah. And, and I, I, and I think there's that, that's one of the beauties of that age. And I think for any, for some of our kind of, uh, some of our challenges that we need to meet on a kind of global level, it's harnessing some of that energy and that kind of blind um, faith that it's the right thing to do and the idealism that idealism and and that kind of impassioned direction that you are going to make this happen this work you are going to succeed um, and we need a lot of that and we need it now uh, on things like energy solutions on our housing on you know there's some of the problems I, I was talking about earlier in, in you know how do we create a better Cornwall well we we need to engage some of the people who are going to make that happen and allow that energy and that youth to come through and that, you know, unstoppable force. One of the things I found interesting earlier when we were talking before we started recording was 
uh you know we were talking about this like imposter syndrome ego thing and how you overcome it and you made a couple of references to when you were like you know really in the thick of it with surfers against sewage and a lot of like the criticism and also like the lies that were being told about you as, a, mm. as an individual um were, were you driven by that idealism yourself at that point because what we what would you have been when this all started kicking off like 28 mid, mid to late 20s yeah 28 so yeah i mean that's still sort of that presumably to try and undertake such a campaign as you would you know were, were hoping to achieve which at the time must have seen you know you've already mentioned the fact that like well parliament's not a place for us like you know select committees aren't a place for us we're a bunch of surfers were you driven was it that idealism that drove you to kind of like ignore all that and try and still carry out the actions that you, you that you wanted to do yeah i mean i was a co-founder of surface against sewage i even had this weird conversation with the guy who coined the phrase surface against sewage and he was a co-founder but and he he a year ago said you weren't and i kind of went well i didn't really exist until we got going until we were something and that was when we you know formed into something that was out there not just in our own oh he said you weren't the one of the founders yeah which i'm you know that but that's kind of yeah 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 yeah, like, but you know, whatever, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. Like, that was we, an absolute whatever. We we but, could argue about who was the editor of White Lines, me and my friends. Did you? Until the cows come so, home. <laughs> but, but, the, but the thing of going over, uh, of seeing, I kind of knew that we did need to go to Parliament. And, you know, it was a very scary thing to do, to ring up Parliament and say, uh, how do we do this? But also it was it was a, it was a, a cheekiness and an, ele- a, a, you know, it was a, it's like a daring thing to go and do. It was a bit like, you know, skiving off school for the day. Yeah. Almost type. Yeah. You know, you know, you knew you weren't meant to, which almost made you think, well, damn it, I will then. Yeah. And we will. We'll go and do this. You say we can't, we will. Yeah. And we'll show you. So, yeah, that impetuousness, that um, energy. But, you know, what drove us was the panty liner in the face. Another day of going surfing in poopy water. Yeah. You know, going and looking at the outfall pipes, seeing it kind of come up and, you know, so however much you thought you weren't going to go and do it, go and spend another day at the beach and you fire up again. Go out and get that. Yeah. But that, it sounds like that kind of criticism, I'm going to just call it for argument, for ease of reference, did affect you. Which criticism? Well, you talked about the fact that people was you heard people talking about you in the street you know yeah, yeah, and you yeah. and you and you heard rumors that people were spreading about you about your motives yeah. and you know you were accused of like siphoning money off and all this stuff. you know like quite hefty things to hear about yourself when you're driven by and it sounds like that did affect you at the time um it was in your brain and you had to process it yeah you couldn't kind of just go it's all roses because you knew that there were some people detracting but actually what you had to do was to then go and prove them wrong and you know i always say that it was i i go to sleep in my own head at night and i kind of have i know my own moral compass so you had to put those kind of rumors and things to one side and kind of prove them wrong yeah and were you always able to keep belief in that moral compass in the rightness of that moral compass um yeah, I mean, I had some good friends around me, you know, people who genuinely cared. And if I ever kind of got too down, they'd help pull me back up. And if I ever got too 
up myself and, and a, you know, my ego too inflated, they pull me back down and literally, you know, sometimes pull me off my board and stick my head underwater if I was going that way. Yeah. But other, in the other way, they'd lift me up and kind of go, you know, keep going. Yeah. And you knew that, you know, you, you knew that the vast majority of people, and I think again, back to our, how do we solve society's problems? The vast majority of people are good people. They want to do the right thing. They want to see the right thing happen. They do care for each other and they do care about the planet. And what we see through our media is the extremities of that because it's a story. It's conflict. And actually, you know, we, they, you know, Joe Cox, we have more in common than divides us. Yeah. I think I asked you when we did the first interview, which was just pre-COVID, wasn't it? It was like about two. It week, was about two weeks, two three weeks before, before kicked COVID, off, wasn't yeah. it? I think I asked you if you felt hopeful with the way the conversation was going. A lot has changed in the world since then. Um, I'm talking about the sustainability mm. environmental conversation, which obviously you've been an intrinsic part of, especially in this country for you know 20, 30 years. How do you feel now? Um, I am concerned that we've had another 18 months and that we've been looking at COVID. Hopefully we can learn some lessons from COVID. Um, you know, there's no doubt that the climate crisis is slamming in towards us. You know, we're in it. It's, yeah. I'll rephrase that. Climate crisis is slamming into us. Yeah. It's not coming slamming towards us. It's here. We're seeing it um, right around the globe in different forms we have to act and we have to up our game even more um can we do so i think we can uh i think in a way you know the lies that our government might tell us and that we see those politicians hopefully this is their last burnout their last you know scrabble to keep the system that they want to keep because it, it, it doesn't work. Um, now, if we have to go through another cycle of five years, that would be tough um, But in this country. But I think if you look around the world at what's actually going on, um, there are enough companies in place. We've got some massive great issues in hauling the big tech companies back in place. And, you know, the things like, you know, if you look back into the 1980s and read Ben Elton Stark, yeah. Starship Ark. Suddenly looks very uh, that was, that's ahead absolutely of its time, real. isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it was about the uber-rich people screwing the planet and then building themselves a star arc to yeah. go to the next planet. Yeah. And guess what they're doing, Bezos, bloody Branson, all of you lot. Um, you know, and I've got an interesting conversation coming up with someone in Cornwall from the space station. Um, you know, they did a launch last week and um, I tweeted back to them and said, I'll be interested to see what your sustainability footprint is. Now, they've come back to me and said, um, well, actually, we're pulling it together this summer. Hang on a second. You've yeah. launched this and you're now writing retrospectively your thing. And then also, oh, and by the way, you were someone who I've been told to get in contact with. Well, it's a bit late. I've got in contact with you. Yeah. If you thought that you should have got in contact with me and someone had told you you should have got in contact with me, why didn't you? And that's going to be something I'm going to pick up, you know, when we've kind of finished here today or tomorrow. I'm going to, and, and, that's, and I'm going to say that to her. You know, if you're serious about it, you must have thought about the environmental impact. You can't just be thinking about it now. 
Yeah, but I think that's the challenge that we've got, isn't it? Because people, I mean, that is kind of staggering, but also not that surprising, really. Yeah, because that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, like when you look at, I'm just thinking about Bezos, Elon Musk. I mean, I've had so many conversations about that with friends, you know, because I'm very much in Gil Scott Heron's camp, Mm. (laughs) you know, like what a colossal waste of money and time and resources. But, you know, I've got friends who, Guardian reading, fair trade, teabag buying friends who are like dazzled by the geekery, you know, who are like, yeah, but it's really cool, essentially, you know. And I'm a bit like, yeah, but come on. Like, really? You know, think about whatever. We don't need to rehash that. But I think there is, it's a message that you just need to keep hammering and hammering and hammering, isn't it? You know, if somebody like that, who's basically responsible for the what is it the spaceport or something yeah. in, in in this county has not actually got their shit together to have an answer to that when somebody like you contacts them i mean i think that is just quite common though isn't it really yeah unfortunately it is but that's why you're looking for enlightened companies and enlightened people and they need to be the ones who take the lead yeah. in these things yeah yeah i mean on and, and 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 you know when you're trying to attract the best people to go and work for a company, that's what, you know, the best companies can make the, make the difference. And we need really good companies and we need really good political leaders and we need really good civil and societal leaders. And, you know, they will come from the good companies and, and you know, the good sectors. Those people are there. We just need to make sure they're heard. Does COVID give you any hope? Because early on you <clears> kind <throat> of felt like, you know, there was such swinging change very quickly you know that you kind of felt like wow here's proof that that when we are faced with a huge problem like there is appetite and political will to change it you know early on it felt and there's a lot of like idealistic talk about like perhaps these changes will be permanent you know like and certainly some things have changed but now from my point of view it's almost and again you know very subjective perspective but it's a bit depressing really because because you know the minor, the most minor inconvenience, such as like wearing a mask or whatever it is, and people are like literally manning the barricades in London, you know. So when you look at climate change and the demands that that's going to place upon us as a society, and actually the the the, the changes that you think m- might be required to actually affect that the way that you're talking about, it doesn't really fill me with like a huge amount of hope that the people are going to go along with that really How, have you have you thought about it from that perspective like the events of the last year and what it says about that particular conversation again i was quite similar really positive at first that people were going to get behind it but then i also saw that people were trying to kind of move around the edge and even the surfing world that was the same way you yeah know, people using it's saying it's the man on the train well, again, yeah actually it? yes uh, and and doing that and not being solid and it was interesting the welsh south welsh uh, south wales surfing crew was so lock solid no one went surfing yeah whereas here it was very very different to that and lots of people and some of them professionals and you know were just going yeah but it's okay for me and you're kind of going well yeah but it's not because if you go why shouldn't everybody else go so i think the same applies um and we're seeing such a rush to go back to everybody wants to go back to flying overseas and uh, as often and frequently as they want and that is a bit depressing but it's it's how 
So I think we had a moment there. Will we reflect back on that moment? What we know is that we have to work as a, as a, on a planetary level to deal with COVID and we're still struggling to get through to that point. Now, it's going to slap us around until we realise that. And in the same way, climate change is just going to keep on slapping us around as a species until we realise what's coming. And I saw the very brilliant John Elkington, who you know, he was the guy who coined the phrase triple bottom line thinking. Right. Um, and he's one of Britain's kind of most respected business sustainability leaders. And he was asked the question, you know, this is all very well thinking about changing the you know, renewable energy and everything. What about China? Um, and he reflected and he said, well, actually, having been, he, he's been to China, he's seen some good things. And he says, but the, the political system there, you know, we, we probably will end up seeing a war, I'm sure. It's on some level. Yeah. Um, and that's depressing in itself. But again, Mark Carney, you read that book, if we don't shift away from the current version of where we are, of uber rich people, having all of it yeah and the disparity and, and and poorer people being left behind you will end up with situations and, and they, they might not be marching revolutions on the street but you will end up with a fragmented society and that's trouble yeah yeah i guess i mean you know i just look at it as a sort of i'm probably likely to given what i do in the way that i view things but it just seems people obviously can do great things when there's a solid is communicated in a good way yeah and there's there's a there's unified leadership as you've alluded to you know history tells us that i think those elements are lacking right now personally which kind of accounts for some of what's gone wrong if you like with the covid situation doesn't seem to be clear communication doesn't really seem to be you know it's almost like entrenched positions even further so it comes back to your point, I think, about leadership and, and yeah. also the way it's communicated, really. Um, and that is clearly necessary on a lot of different fronts. So the, for me, that's what would need to change, really, um, if if we're not going to have the same scenario that we're kind of faced with now. Because ultimately, it's just been a lens that's amplified the differences that are already there. You know, in, in, as we talked about with some specific examples here. Uh, And how to get through that is a massive challenge. Mm. And some days I'm kind of hugely optimistic and then other days I just go, oh my goodness, this is hard. I think that's why I asked the question really, yeah. given, given like the time And I fluctuate elapsed. between those. Um, I do carry a picture around of me of my, you know, I don't have any children, but I've got a picture of my great niece and my great uh, nephew and I, they're my clients in many ways. Yeah. Um, because I need to try and make sure stuff is okay for them and it isn't too grim. But I think if for us to say it's all rosy, it's not. No. And we need to realise that. And the sooner more of us realise it, the sooner we will come to some form of action. Now, it, it, it's a leadership thing. Um, and we need to stop fighting against each other and trust in science so there you go that was me and chris and i hope you enjoyed it very interesting experience pulling that whole workshop thing together and it went so well that i'm thinking of putting it out there for other companies brands 
and groups. I've I've actually had a few people on Instagram ask me if I'd do it for individuals as well. I've got to be honest, I'm you know I'm still kind of getting my head around the whole thing really. Um, like I said at the beginning, this day long session is really part workshop, part podcast tutorial, and part talk on the art of creativity and storytelling. Um, Christian, who commissioned the original thing left me a nice review afterwards which said this is a valuable workshop not just for those interested in podcasts but more widely the importance of storytelling as well considering how we can communicate in a more engaging and empathetic way the workshop completely shifted our understanding of the value of not just podcast but storytelling to support cultural development with purpose so that's nice now if i had my shit together i would by now have created a web page and a laser-targeted email marketing and social campaign a la David Hyatt's various business courses and endeavours. But I don't have my shit together in that way, so I haven't done that. So if you're interested, DM me at We Look Sideways or email me at podcast at wearelookingsideways.com. All right, that's it for now. I'll be back soon with more of the usual Looking Sideways fare. Cheerio for now. 